Welcome back to another episode of the Curbsiders Internal Medicine Podcast, the podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and hopefully some practice-changing knowledge. Stuart Stuart doesn't like the stock intro, but we're going to keep using it. People need to know who we are, Stuart. I'm kind of burned out, Matt. (laughs) Right. So on this episode, our guest is Dr. Philip Croth. Dr. Croth is an associate professor at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. He is board certified in both internal medicine and clinical informatics. He's also the director of biomedical informatics research, training, and scholarship at the UNM UNM Health Sciences Library and Informatics Center and the section chief of clinical informatics in the UNM Department of Internal Medicine. Dr. Croth uh, has his initial degree in computer engineering uh, before going to medical school and internal medicine residency and then completing a fellowship in biomedical informatics. The reason we had Dr. Croth on the show is because we're, number one, interested in clinical informatics and figuring out exactly what it is and how it can be used to improve medical practice. And number two, we wanted to talk to him about his research on physician wellness which specifically looks at how the electronic health record affects physician wellness and physician job satisfaction, burnout, work-life balance, et cetera. Uh, we, some, of the, some of the things we talk about on here um, are things that worked with the electronic health record, things that don't, didn't work. I think there's a lot of pearls in here as far as what you can do to either prevent burnout yourself or to improve your practice and hopefully prevent burnout in your colleagues as well. So, so Dr. Croth was our guest on this episode. And again, we're talking about physician wellness and clinical informatics. I think it's an interesting discussion. So please enjoy. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with co-host Stuart Brigham. And our guest today is Dr. Philip Croth from the University of New Mexico. Hi, Dr. Croth. Hi, guys. Hey, thanks for being with us today. My we are, pleasure. We are really excited to talk with you uh, about various topics, but um, before we get into all that, we just kind of wanted to ask, so you have a pretty interesting, uh, I think you have an interesting resume. You're board certified in clinical informatics and internal medicine. So which, which one of those passions came first, or was that kind of your plan from the get-go? Oh, no. No one plans to do this, I think, from the beginning. I, I was a... Um... Uh, I, I was really the first person in my family to graduate college, and my dad was an electrician who worked in a factory. And you know, I went to engineering school and got a job, and he thought that was the be all and end all of everything. And I decided I wanted to go to medical school. They really kind of looked at me funny, like, "Don't mess this up." <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I went back to medical school, which is what I really wanted to do after working in the industry for a few years. And I was just amazed at the sort of primitive and chaotic way, I thought, with my background in computer engineering, of how the records were kept back then, in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. It was still mostly paper. And so that kind of led me to clinical informatics eventually. And, and uh, well, I, I, do, I do want to get into the implication, implications of going from paper to, <laughs> to electronic. But um, so along the way, uh, what did you have to do to get to get certified in clinical informatics. Sure. sure. So essentially, I, I finished med school. I did a residency in, in, in internal medicine. 
I took the boards. I actually practiced for a year before I went back. Uh, I did a three-year research fellowship because back then there was no, there were no fellowships in clinical informatics until a few years ago. This is back in 2000, and uh, there were about mm, at the time 18 or 20 universities in the United States that offered fellowships in uh, what they called back then medical informatics. Recently, the um, it's now possible to get board certified in clinical in, in clinical informatics, which is uh, specific to physicians, just like you get board certified in cardiology or rheumatology or one of the other medical subspecialties. You uh, have to have graduated from a board certified training program. However, since it's new, they give you a five-year grandfather period where you can sort of um, make your plea and say, well, gee, I have the equivalent of experience of coming from a, a fellowship, a clinical informatics fellowship. And um, as they're creating new uh, certified or accredited fellowships right now. The other thing that's unique about it is to, to enter the fellowship, you can come from virtually any of the medical specialties or subspecialties. So you can be a surgeon, you can be an ED doc, dermatology, neurology, internal medicine in any of the subspecialties, pediatrics in any of the subspecialties, and you are qualified to take the um, fellowship in clinical informatics, which is two years. And then um, if you graduate from an accredited one, you can sit for the uh, board exam. So can you walk us through a kind of a, a day in your life as a clinical informatics physician? What is it exactly that you do? Okay, so my background is I'm a little bit broader than just than clinical informatics. That the field of biomedical informatics is everything. So that's from people that start one end of the scale, think small molecules, uh, chemi informatics, or people that do drug in silico drug discovery with modeling and whatnot. You go up to large molecules, you have DNA and people that do what's called bioinformatics or looking at um, uh, strands of DNA or whole genomes and uh, looking at the differences and finding genes and doing processing with those uh, electronically. You get up to patients and health systems, you get clinical informatics, mm -hmm. which is the study of, you know, how does this technology impact quality and cost in the healthcare delivery segment, and you go up to even bigger organizations, populations, you can have public health informatics. Those are all areas that people focus on for research. Um, the board exam just focuses on, on clinical informatics, and that is really training physicians in how to um, participate from a clinician's point of view, which I think is very, very important because we need more clinicians to be involved in the implementation of this technology because it's very disruptive and has a huge impact on the healthcare that we can deliver. But primarily, it's, it's to train physicians in how do you do that? How do you work with organizations to install EHRs and new features of EHRs and, and derive the value that we're hoping to get? Do you find, though, that some physicians tend to shy away from you for some reason? Like they're oh, afraid to well, talk to you? That may be that may have nothing to do with the fact that I work with informatics. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Please they, do tell. They, uh, uh, I think um, most physicians, if you start talking about this, like I, you know, if you go to a party where there's a number of physicians and you start talking about electronic health records, it just like it's a floodgate opens up. I mean, people want to talk about this. Right. Um, it, it's, you know, there's a lot of unintended consequences with the adoption of this technology. 
there's a lot of, um, there's many issues on many levels. And my impression is, in fact, like when we did our research and we had focus groups, you know, the focus groups ended, people were emailing me weeks after the focus groups were done saying, I want to tell you more. And I would say, no, 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 don't violate the protocol of the research. But uh, I, I really think physicians want to talk about this. So, so the physician wellness, like how did you get, how did you bridge the gap from being clinical informatics to going into phys- physician wellness? Right. And I, it was purely how most things happen in science, which is purely by accident. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I met um, uh, a physician named Mark Linzer, who's a nationally renowned expert in physician burnout and work-life balance. And, you know, he'd been studying work-life balance for his whole career. And he came up to me and he said, you know, you do research in clinical informatics. And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, you know, when I study physician burnout and wellness more and more, the EHRs and the health information technology just comes up again and again. And I, I would really like to partner someone that's done this kind of research. And, but then, you know, he really educated me on, you know, the cost of this, you know, and clearly, you know, burnout is a something that, you know, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. It should never happen once. But there really is, uh, some say it's an epidemic of physician burnout. Um, as an example, there was a really good article back in 1991 that he talked me about, told me about, and, and uh, I'm blanking the name and the author right now, but they basically just did an economic analysis for an academic practices, I think in pediatrics, family medicine, and general internal medicine, the cost of when a primary care physician leaves the practice. So that would be somebody working at a university clinic or something. And then the costs associated with that person being gone, the costs associated with recruiting a new person, getting them sort of ensconced in the new system and kind of getting up to speed. And in 1991 dollars, that cost was about a quarter of a million dollars for one person. Wow. And, and so if I'm sitting across from the C- CEO of a health system, and I can give them all kinds of statistics about stress and burnout and how it's bad. And, you know, there was a recent study published. It was by Tate Shanafeld, S-H-A-N-A-F-E-L-T. And it was titled Changes in Burnout and Satisfaction with the Work-Life Balance in Physicians and the General U.S. Working Population between 2011 and 2014. And it was published in uh, the Mayo Clinic uh, Proceedings in 2015. And they, you, you can go in and look for the, the, the way they did it, but they used the Maslock burnout inventory uh, for this. And they think that about, well, they reported 54.4% of physicians, and I'm quoting here, uh, reported at least one symptom of burnout in 2014. And that's up from uh, 45.5% in 2011. So, um, but we're actually getting worse while the kind of general average is staying the same between 2011 and, and 2014. So this is a real serious problem. And so he kind of educated me about this. And, you know, so we said, gee, we want to, so we wanted to try to do a study to figure out what specific aspects of this technology are most associated with stress and burnout. Because, you know, you can ask people, well, what do you think about an EHR? And people will give you their laundry list of things. And you know what I'm saying? And so we want to really try to apply some scientific rigor to this. I, I do want to just take a take a moment to uh, kind of define burnout. So burnout is sort of, uh, th- there's usually like three 
three criteria for at least for the Maslach burnout. And there's some like there's there's one part that deals with questions on depression or anxiety, kind of that they call burnout or fatigue. And then the other one that's depersonalization, where sort of physicians right. have this loss of empathy uh, or dehumanization. And then the the other one is this reduction in feelings of personal achievement. So those Correct. are kind of the three categories. Right. I'll quote from the paper here. They, they, they define burnout is, and this is a quote, is a syndrome of emotional exhaustion, loss of meaning in work, feelings of ineffectiveness, and a tendency to view people as objects rather than as human beings. That sounds pretty horrible. And, and you know, this is, this is not something that happens overnight. This is different from stress. Stress is an acute, you know, it's a minute-by-minute minute thing, and, and not all stress is bad. And the way that I, you know, for internists, I say the difference between stress and burnout is sort of like um, the difference between blood pressure and hypertension, <laughs> if that makes and any sense. It is. And, and, and I think uh, talking about this, treating people like objects, I mean, I think that if you walk around, uh, if you walk around the residents or the the clinic, um, whether it's staff physician or residents, I've spent a lot of time in several different hospitals at this point in my career, and it's not that uncommon to, if you were a patient walking by, you would be shocked at the way that these students right. or residents or physicians are talking about patients. And I think if you were to take snippets of that conversation and play it back to people, they would be shocked at, at kind of what they sound like. And, and I can say, you know, I'm not, I am totally guilty of this myself. Uh, in preparation for this talk, I was kind of thinking of conversations I've had in the past few weeks and months, and it, it happens. It's, it's because it's a difficult, you're dealing with life, life or death situations. You, you have a lot of people, your time's pulled in a lot of directions. You, you have all these charting responsibilities you have maybe have teaching responsibilities. You have to call patients on the phone. Uh, then you have your family at home to deal with. So something's got to give somewhere. So it is, you know, it does happen. And it's, I, I believe the numbers of 50%. And I, I certainly see that in, in, in practice. In, in, in what practice settings do you tend to find the highest uh, association with burnout? Oh, gee, you know, that's, um, I don't know that there have been that many studies done on this. And to drill down into like specialty specific versus or, setting, because you know right. you have like inpatient and outpatient, and so um, I don't know of any study that really drills down on to that level yet. Or, or even I think like, this is, a, you know, a, a, a comparing like academic medicine versus private practice versus right. government, right? So we can, uh, if if uh, if we find any of this uh, as we're putting the the episode together, we'll we'll certainly link to the articles that you're you're mentioning in the show notes so that our listeners can look okay. those up. But it is, yeah, it is an interesting question. I mean, is there are there some specialties that burn out more than others? Uh, you know, everyone. I think the grass is greener in a lot of ways. Like people people assume that that everyone in dermatology is happier than everyone else. I don't know if that's borne out in, you know, if you study it, I don't know if that's true or not, but. Right. They'll probably say it's empirical. <laughs> right. And again, my area is I'm really focusing on the HIT. Yeah. We, we actually think there's, uh, I, we've, we're kind of putting this construct together about the things that impact physician burnout and stress. And there's really, we think, probably four domains, one of, one of which is the health IT, but there are others too, 
that impact this. And I think we should get into this because our okay. our listeners are our practitioners. Um, they can hopefully some of what we talk about that you've learned from your research, people can implement in their practice to hopefully make a better environment for their employees, for themselves, and and hopefully pre- help us prevent burnout because that's the point of the research, right? So right. So what are the domains that you were the four domains? Okay, so I, and again, this is just you know this is based on our our focus group research. We. Uh, we're just kind of uh, putting this together as a straw man, but clearly HIT and more specifically the documentation burden. And I use those terms very uh, particularly because I think documenting is becoming a significant burden for physicians in ways that it never has been before. And that's, so that's one domain and HIT is definitely part of that. Another domain is work process. The way that your clinic works how, um, and how much control you have over how your clinic works. There's this thing um, called the stress, uh, de- um, a model for how you model stress in the job is a seesaw. And on one side, you have like work and stress. The other side, you have control and support. So to balance the seesaw, if you have a lot of stress and you have a lot of control and support on the other side, you're fine. When people get into trouble is when they have a lot of stress and they don't have enough control and support. So, you know, and, you know, we've all been the victim of this where we've worked in places where there have been clinic process problems. It can be very um, difficult. The other two domains um, are um, uh, policy and regulation. Anyone who's been involved in trying to implement meaningful use with electronic health records knows that this is not easy. It's extraordinarily complicated the goals and benefits are not always very clear. And I think that this is another major contributor is the policy. And with MACRA coming down the pike, um, that's yet another new thing we've all got to get our heads around. The last thing, and I think this surprises most people, is us. It's our physician culture. You know, you all have seen physicians in training that wear like a badge of honor that I did, you know, two shifts or, you know, I worked when I had 102 fever, you know, a million years ago when I was in training and I was a medical student and I worked in the, in the, doing my surgical rotations, there was a surgeon resident that put an IV in his arm and gave himself two liters of fluid because he thought he had the flu (laughs) and continued to work. And, and, and you know this, I mean, you know, we have in, in physicians, if you're a non-physician, you may not be aware of this, but I think you would agree with me that we have a culture of endurance. Yes. We endure, we do what it takes to get the job done for the patient. And this is a laudable thing, right? I mean, this is what makes medicine special. However, if you carry that to an extreme, it can be very, very unhealthy. And I think a lot of that is the way that we are sort of acculturated in our physician profession. And that is changing. It's, it's changing for the better slowly, I think. But I think those four things are really major factors that are in play here. And we're, you know, uh, Stuart, Stuart and I are, are sort of towards the, the beginning of the millennial generation, sort of towards the older end of it. And I think, you know, we're kind of caught in this weird middle, but I, I think that the millennials, it, it, reading about a lot, a lot about them, they, I think they are, they want to be more protective of their time and uh, being, I guess, considered a millennial myself, 
the reason I will say that is because I think a lot of us saw our parents and these and, and older generations where they were workaholics, they weren't home as much as we wanted. And so we sort of want to be more protective of our time and the, the burdens of the job, uh, spending where you spend a full day in clinic. If you want to spend your whole day looking the patient in the eye, listening to them, then your notes have to get done at some point. And there's not really time built in between patients, even five minutes for you to chart unless you short your time with the patient or unless you type when the patient is talking to you. So it, it is a tough thing, and we don't want to be sort of absent from our families. And this gets back to the work-life balance. We want to be, we want to be there for our patients. We want to be there for our families. I, I guess the goal in the future is that we have something like uh, Iron Man has, where he just talks, and the robot, you know, Jarvis thing, <laughs> just like does everything for him. You know, that would be great. Uh, some some version of Dragon software that is is even more user friendly that can really do it because. It is tough, and I, I think that's why I think things will get better because I think that the the younger generations of physicians are going to demand it because we're, for better or worse, we I think we're going to be more protective of our time. Maybe I'm, I don't know, Stuart, am I just like uh, projecting on everyone else my own? <laughs> well, I, 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 I think you have to, you, you kind of have to, to, to roll back to what he's saying about the, uh, the physician culture itself because even though the millennials have this... Uh, uh, predisposition where they want to be con- want to have more control of their time. I think those who find themselves in, in medicine are are still going to be driven to the extreme. So it's still going to be the extreme of that generation. Um, so you know, I I don't think it's necessarily applicable to everyone per se. What were some of the uh, successes that uh, the the paper the paper that you had sent us from the, the the study that you did was called the MS MS squared study. So what were some of the successes? Right, MS squared is um, uh, minimizing or maximizing success, minimizing stress, um, and uh, uh, study on what we call health information and communications technology because it's really all lumped together. Uh, you know, it was a convenient sample. We invited people to participate in the focus groups. They were ninety minutes long. They also did a a uh, a short. Uh, questionnaire is based on a survey that Dr. Linzer developed called the Mini Z, which is a it's an assessment of physician work-life balance, stress, and burnout. And then we asked people basically what worked, what didn't work, what can make it better, what are the personal consequences, and how do you cope? Things that worked pretty much, it was very interesting. People basically said the ability to access all of the patient's information in one place basically from many different locations. So at home, at work, I can get into the HR. They said that was a benefit. Interestingly, being able to access the patient medical record from everywhere was also listed as one of the problems. Yeah, you never get away from work. Right, right. That's <laughs> right. And so um, this is really a double-edged sword. It, you know, and this, I find this true of technology in general. Um, we don't know how to turn it off very well. Um, I read a paper about uh, the company Volkswagen, and they turn off their email mm. system at 7 o'clock at night. And that's they a wellness thing for their employees? Is yes, that, right. That's awesome. And, and now they have critical um, uh, you know, officers that are on all the time. But essentially, and I don't know if it's 7 o'clock, but they're, in the evening they disable their email because they want their, their employees to stop working. So there's, I mean, there's a lot of, so, so wellness is, is kind of like 
I, I'm a total amateur at wellness, but I, I, I saw the need to start doing things to protect my own wellness. And the email is one of the things like you turn off the automatic, that thing that pops up on outlook that says you have received a message. It's like more work coming in for you to do more people that you need to interact with. Right. Exactly. And so some of the other things that people said were problematic were, uh, and what people want really want to focus on is, and there were, there were other things, people like digital radiology and e-prescribing. They thought those were good things. Mm -hmm. Um, but things that don't work are, uh, interoperability, health information exchanges. There are some regions in the country where you have like around Indiana and other places where they actually have very good regional health information exchanges and you can actually get electronic um, records for patients from other systems, health systems. Right. But that is not the case everywhere. And, um, you know, there was a, um, a government report that came out a few months ago where they, they talk about information blocking and the, I think it was the OMB did an investigation of some of the major health IT vendors. And they basically said, yes, we know that there's information blocking going on or when the vendors are di- designing their equipment to make it harder to interface it to other systems but they can't prove it. That why, was the conclusion of the government report. Why would they do that? Well, I, because they want to sell you a product. They want you to buy, um, they want everyone to buy in a given city or region to buy into their product. Or they want to sell you a, an add-on to your system so you can convert it to the format of somebody else's system. I see. The other thing people said, decision support. Very good idea, but not implemented very well. Can you give an example? Would it would, would it be something like DVT? Like, do, does this person need DVT prophylaxis? Right. You know, another for a physician, it could be something as simple like um, uh, I'm prescribing, I'm renewing a, a patient's diuretic, and a little pop up window would say, "Hey, the last uh, creatinine we have in the patient was from a year and a half ago. Would you like to order one?" You know, there's a lot to how you we know about how to do alerts well, but what these physician groups are telling us is they don't think um, that this is being done well. The other thing, and this really surprised us, this is probably the most surprising thing that uh, we found was that people said, and this, you know, in, in different ways, but they said, seeing the potential of what this technology can do to improve care that's not currently implemented. So people would say things like, you know, every time I order a consult, I've got to fill out this form. And I know that most of these fields that I'm filling out, the information is already stored somewhere else in the chart, yet I have to keep entering in every time. It's kind of the, you know, those annoying things that you know could be better. You know the technology exists to do it better, and it's just not implemented. And that was one of the most frustrating things for physicians. And the other thing that people said they didn't like is what you already alluded to, which is I don't like to have my back to the patient. I, don't, I like to have eye contact with the patient. And that's one of the things when people have medical scribes, which you may want to discuss, but that's where you pay someone to, to do the data entry. And by the way, that only solves part of the problem because they only help you with the data entry. They don't help you with all the other things you do when you need to get the data out. Right. Usually. What, what people that get a scribe, the first thing they say is like, oh my gosh, I reconnected with why I went into medicine. I'm actually, I'm spending more time actually looking my patient in the eye and interacting with them. And it's tremendous. And, you know, that's, that's a really, that's kind of a, a side effect of the, the user interface design, 
the amount of you know people complain about a lot of data entry tasks that we have to do that arguably could be done in by other people in the in the clinic and um, but I thought that was very telling when you look at the scribe studies how people just say how they they talk and they use that word reconnect with their patients. I do want to sort of wrap up with some of like sure. you know some of the future directions and hopefully uh, some of the things that you look forward to uh, that, that might get better for us. So we can end on a positive note and maybe talk about some of the things you do. Um, you, you didn't really, t- we didn't get into it much about the things you do for work life balance that maybe you can recommend to the right. listeners. Well, one of the things I would recommend is that what I learned in the study and what makes it better is to take the training, take as much training as you can. And even if you think you don't need to take training, take the training. And that was something that um, I think helps me is to make sure that I am up to date with all with everything that I need to know so that I'm taking advantage of all the features. And part of that is just communicating with your peers and people saying, hey, do you, do you see how this works? But be open to taking the training. And for my own work-life balance, you know, I, um, I love to garden. I have a, a fabulous family. I have four little kids, I have, uh, five-year-old twins. Um, but I kind of look at, I love to garden. And I, the way that I frame my life is I'm a gardener kind of interrupted by the rest of life. Uh-huh. And it sounds a little silly, but I mean, some days the only thing I can do is walk through my yard and kind of lament the number of weeds that I should be, or, <laughs> or look at the half-finished projects. But you know, you need to have, I think you need to have something passionate in your life. You have to follow a passion in your life other than medicine. If nothing else, just to get blood flow to different parts of your brain for part of the day. And there are days when I garden probably for just, you know, the walk to the mailbox and back and I'm looking at things and, you know, some days I do it for 10 minutes. Maybe I do it longer. Um, but, you know, find a passion that's completely detached from medicine and, and you know, make, make time, schedule it. Um, and I also, I spend um, a lot of time, I prioritize my family, you know, I plan as far ahead as I can to make sure I have time to get to the important family events, um, you know, to take care of my relationship with my wife, who, by the way, is a physician too. So that in some ways makes it a little harder. It's, it's mm-hmm. better and worse because she understands the kind of stress that you're under. Um, and, um, you know, stay healthy. All of us should have a, a primary care physician. Um, and, you know, I think um, I saw a paper many years ago where someone made a statement that there are more physicians that don't have primary care physicians than the general population. And, you know, it's good for us to go sit in the room once a year with the gown on, irritated that the, the guy or the gal that you're going to see is late. It's good for us to experience that. I mean, yeah. eventually the tragic irony is that we all become patients at some point. <laughs> I think we should all go to the doctor every year, you know, get a primary care doctor and take care of yourself. You need to be able to go. I go to my doctor and I say, I'm Phil. He knows I'm a doctor, but I don't need to know anything. I don't have to be up in the literature. I can just go and be the patient. And I think that's really important. That's, I think that's good advice. And, and I like the fact that your, your out of medicine hobby has nothing to do with technology because one of the things that I've found that is is just so um, is so rare these days is to try to just pay attention to things things that are not that don't have to do with technology that aren't coming from a screen. So, yeah. So there's I mean reading paper books is something that I try to do um, whenever I can. Uh, not and, and fiction fiction or nonfiction, but something that I am ex- interested in and enjoy outside of outside of a tablet or my computer screen because I spend way too much time 
way too much time with those things. And I'm, and I'm also kind of convinced that's why everyone has insomnia and anxiety and all that kind of stuff that, that I see way too much of on a daily basis. Yeah. Well, it's interesting in pediatric, my wife's a pediatrician and the pediatricians recommend for young children or children in general, at most an hour of screen time a day. Yeah. And I that's, thought, where is that? At? <laughs> when does that end? <laughs> it's tough. 18, 18, apparently. They're like, I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, no, never mind, go ahead. What, what do you think it is at 18? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, it, at 18, kids one... are in their college dorm room spending like right? six hours a night playing video games. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's unfortunate, exactly. but true. But I think I think they're so you know clearly the other thing is people compare the, the last thing or one of the things I want to get in before the end is that the comparison to paper in a lot of ways is unfair anymore because we are asked to do so much more with a modern electronic record that we couldn't even do with paper. You know the thing the things were required like medication reconciliation and recording. Um, all kinds of other, uh, like documenting diabetic foot exams and right. uh, filling out forms and, you know, checking. We have a uh, narcotics patient monitoring system in our state and we have mm-hmm. to log in and check that. And, you know, a lot of the things we have to do, it just couldn't be done on paper. And so it's almost not a fair comparison. I don't think anyone would want to go back. You know, we tend to forget all the good things and we remember all the bad things longer, too. That's kind of human nature, too. So that's another thing we're, that's in play. Right. And, and I think that, uh, I would encourage the listeners to, uh, I I had mentioned this earlier in the, in the talk, but you know, when you're walking around the clinic, uh, hearing people, hearing people complain about things or, or, uh, maybe saying things that are a little bit, uh, I don't know if you hear, hear evidence of dehumanization or depersonalization, try to think about it. Think about if you are having burnout yourself and, and try to, Try to do some things outside of medicine to help yourself. And also, if you if you have the ability to make an impact within your organization, try to implement mm-hmm. some of these things that Dr. Croth has been talking about. And ultimately, of the uh, four domains that, that he was talking about, there's only one that you can change tomorrow, and that's yourself. The way that you approach and perceive medicine. You know, if you're going to walk around your clinic and just look at all the negatives, then you're, you're going to be negative versus if you go around your clinic and look at the positives and also give some good feedback to your staff, your technicians, the junior staff that you're working with. That's going to substantially change the environment that you're working in and ultimately help to change clinical support and maybe even policy and regulation. Can't do anything about documentation, though. I think I, I try that the, the attitude I strive for is to be sort of the happier warrior. Maybe mm-hmm. warrior isn't the right word, but um I try to be happy in my work. It's so easy to, it's, you can always find the negative, you know, Mm. and, um, the kind of positive self-talk and, you know, uh, deep breathing. Right. Right. (laughs) And, you know, taking a a pause and, and, you know, rather than responding with my reptilian brain, (laughs) take a pause and say, Oh, maybe that person's having a bad day too, you know? And it sounds very superficial, but it's the kind of thing where you need to practice it. I think. Well, and and I think some of this research that you that you showed us, uh, uh, looking at the uh, the article um, changes in burnout and satisfaction from two thousand eleven two thousand fourteen, 
if we look at those years, those are the years that, that some of the Affordable Care Act uh, implemented, the, the, the different sections were implemented. So I think mm-hmm. a lot of that was driven not just by realistic changes in the workplace, but also by the environment that we were living in, because the EHRs were around since before 2011. So we can't necessarily blame it all on EHRs. However, right. they, we're, we're working more to streamline EHRs, which I think would help to improve uh, or help, help to improve burnout, not make it worse. So I think we just, we, we just got to be cognizant that a lot of the ways that we approach is we're, we're driven by outside factors and ICD-10. Hmm. <laughs> and I, I, the last thing I wanted to ask you is just, uh, do you have anything that any p- parting words of advice or any parting requests for our listeners? Um, the only thing I would say is um, don't, you know, uh, when you first hear about work-life balance or, or these sort of things, don't be open to learning about it. You know, um, we had a whole, uh, we have grant rounds in medicine at our institution. They had a whole month or four sessions on physician stress. And there's a lot of people that do research on this, various aspects. I just tend to do it with health IT. There are other people that do other aspects of physician stress and burnout. Learn about it. Just like you learn about any other disease, um, it will, uh, you know, be open to this and pay attention to the statistics because um, it. And, and take care of yourself. You know, we have that culture of endurance. Have to be careful. Thank you so much for all your time tonight. And I think we're going to stop there. Um, we really appreciate it. And we'll definitely link to the MS Squared study in the show notes for this. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Well, thank you, sir. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, and don't forget to leave us a review. Please leave us a review. This helps others discover the show. You can contact us on our pages at Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+, or follow us on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Brigham. Stuart Kent Brigham? Yes. (laughs) And I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. (laughs) See you later, Watto. (laughs) Later. All right. Good. 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 Good.